Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Blank Canvas. Here we go with another best of episode, this time with entrepreneurs. You know, it's often said people are either creatives or they're businessmen. You know, to be a successful entrepreneur, you've got to be pretty creative, I reckon. These guests we've selected for tonight have got that in spades. First up, Lindsay Fox, from one man in a truck to a sophisticated multinational operation. He's not your average truckie, but, you know, talk about persistence. Wow. Still powering in his mid-80s, and I think he's got, oh, I don't know, over 30,000 staff around the world. Incredible story. Over to you, Lindsay Fox. It's a challenging time, but uh, if you haven't got a challenge and there's no mountains to climb, you're flat. Australia is the greatest country in the world, and we should climb at every opportunity. When I played football at St Kilda, the words I remember clearly he who is a hesitates is lost, was one. And number two was the aspect of a champion team will beat a team of champions. Just those simple applications should be applicable to people right throughout the country. If we work together, there's nothing we can't do. Totally agree. We're blessed in this country. No doubt about it. And I agree with you on the barriers. Like the greatest enjoyment comes from overcoming barriers and going, you know, I did that. Whether it's a footy match, whether it's a goal of winning a job, whatever it is, that's the, the joy of living really, isn't it? I've tried to do it all my life. You definitely have. Mate, that's incredible. Did you say 36,000 employees? Yes, in 12 countries. That is incredible. If you've kind of extrapolate that over your whole lifetime, that's an extraordinary number of jobs and food on the table that you've delivered for people. That must give you great satisfaction. Well, if when I bought my first truck, I thought that that's where we'd be at this particular time. Uh, the old-fashioned aspect of saying, you must be dreaming, would have been correct. It's incredible. In the business, I mean, you're probably good at most parts of it, but like anyone, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, so you probably surrounded yourself with great people, particularly in areas that aren't your strongest suit. What's your approach been to staff culture and building a team and the kind of people you hire and how you've retained them? Well, the first thing you've got to do is the self-analysis is what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? and employ people that are twice as good as you in your areas of weakness, then all of a sudden you're a lot stronger. Being a family man, all of my children run the business today. They're the key players with the executives in our team. Uh, Jesus Christ had 12 disciples, one was a Judas. So caveat emptor, buyer beware make sure that all of the people are all on the one team and one person, if he doesn't fit into the team, replace him. Right. Sounds good. In this day and age, 
laying someone off or replacing them is often easier said than done with unfair dismissal laws, etc. How have you managed to, you know, build this incredible business with the, this number of staff and how do you deal with that? You're better off talking to somebody that's on our payroll and ask them so that you get a, a straightforward and honest answer. My approach has always been you do the good job, you're there for life. If you're loyal and committed, you're there for life. If you're not good enough to get to the top job, you've got to realise that where you are is where you're staying. But if you're ambitious and you work hard, there's no reason you can't get to the top. Makes sense. You mentioned your family. You've got a wonderful family and I've, I've met a few of your children over the years and they're wonderful people. So that must be a great source of pride as well, obviously. Well, life is a continual factor. My parents, my mother and father, always cared and shared for people that had less than they did. We lived in a little 15-foot frontage house where my father paid a pound a week rent and he made £4.10 or $9 a week as a truck driver. And all the things he did for other people were quite incredible. Quite often I'd get up ready to go to school and in front of the little fireplace in a little room about 12 foot by 9 foot, there was a fire burning and two strangers didn't know who they were. But it was raining and my father took them off the street because they had nowhere to go. The joy of all of these things, the things that my parents did, I've done and now my children are doing it. And even the grandchildren now are following suit without being told. It's part of the culture of our family. That's lovely. Yeah, it's incredible how much change you've seen through your time. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Did you want your kids to move into the business with you always or was there a lot of pressure for that or they just reached for it of their own accord? No, they're always interested in coming right. into the business. Right. Each of them have excelled. They're doing a great job. Yeah. It's a great team and they've got great camaraderie uh, right throughout the workforce. Right. It's a true family business. Yeah, that's great. You left school at a young age. I, don't I, know I was, was lucky. I was an academic failure. <laughs> I left school at, I think, about 16. I did two years in Form 2, a year and a half in Year 3, and I said, academia is not going to be for me. So I went out and convinced a, a man to sell me a truck on quarterly payments. On top of that, the rest just took its own place. Yeah, wow. It's amazing in these conversations I've been having with people on the podcast, it's amazing how many successful people and trailblazers left school early and weren't academics and I guess they thought outside the box and they just went out and worked and they found a path and developed a work ethic. It's like more of them left school early than certainly went on to, you know, university education. What are your thoughts on those two approaches? I would say at the moment of the supposedly top 20 rich people in Australia, 14 of them never graduated but they learnt their skills and honed in on them by practical experience. Yeah. You take the difference in you being a lover from the first time you made love, you became better as you progressed down the line. 
works exactly the same. You're absolutely right. And that's how I justified multiple partners. You know, it was good experience. Hard earned. <laughs> Only way to travel. Thanks, Lindsay. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Next up, Colette Dinnigan, an iconic fashion designer and pretty well creative force of nature. And of course, she's got the entrepreneurial skills to back it up and make it happen. Over to you, Colette. So my days and weekends and nights were taken up with work as much as it seems so glamorous. Yeah, I've seen you in action and I've stayed with you a few times over the years and I've seen you, you know, work around the clock and the administrative side and the running the business side, well, it was monumental, wasn't it? Oh, it was, you know, so many staff and not just staff in, you know, Australia was America and I think I had one time PR in New York and London and LA, Paris, New Zealand. There were so many just different agencies to get together and meet different legislations in different countries. France was different from England and America and there was so much to follow. And I, you know, in the early days, I think you, you get some sort of kind of allowance of it's a first show, it's a first this, but then you do have have to step up to the mark and kind of hit that very professional note and also you want to because I think as a designer like you know as I morphed from lingerie into slip dresses I kind of then went to tailoring and I think you need to progress and I think by adding tailoring to the design repertoire I felt like it matured the brand but not in an old way and also with my business that was a time when it grew up and you know you have to have a lot of rules and regulations and it takes away a lot of the fun but to me it was always about a very fair playing field and I didn't favor anybody and I felt discipline was important across the board if one person did something wrong. It wasn't about somebody else getting away with it. So I found that very hard to police. But at the same time, you know, I was always wanting to reward people in a way too if they did very well in the business. And I think fashion compared to a lot of other businesses is so distinctly different because you have a myriad of people with different emotional you know, you've got our accountants and our lawyers who are very objective and then you get into the design room and it becomes very subjective and then you move into production and some people haven't even graduated, you know, from a college degree or in cutting and the manufacturing side. And so you've got people with very different I guess, qualifications or some that have none. And it becomes a, a very difficult machine to run and understand all those different levels and also understand the nuances of not just the people but just what the consumer might do or telling, you know, somebody that I really want to invest in this colour yellow and it's going to take $50,000 to print that fabric and, yes, you might not make any money back on it but really it's what the whole rest of the collection hinges on and underneath that will be the commercial level and I need everyone to believe in that with me and the design room would but the accounts department didn't. <laughs> it's just always, it was a difficult thing to run when the business got large, I have to say. Absolutely. I think you're a really astute businesswoman and I think, haven't you been the chairperson or something of the Small Business Association of Australia or New South Wales or something? Yes. Yeah, no, I was for a few years. Oh, that's amazing. Look, to me, I still believe, you know, if you have integrity and honesty and really good ethical values and you run on a lot of instinct, you need to know your facts and figures and you do need to check them and you do need to, I think, listen to your surrounding 
do you know what's happening in the environment or politically, you need to have a very good general knowledge and use all of those different things and have the ability to change. So it's a lot to ask a lot of people, you know, some people don't like change and people don't like to listen to everybody around them. They like to tell them what to do. Others just like to lead and not follow. So I, I don't believe it's about having any one of those things in particular. It's about amalgamating a lot of different things together. And if you are honest, I think your instinct is the number one player and you need to listen and learn and that never stops. And that's what I tried in business was to find something that was missing in the market, research it, trust your instinct, start small, grow big, but put systems into place early on. And if you feel like something's failing, don't try and prove everyone else wrong pull back or like, for instance, when the Lehman Brothers and everything crashed in New York and the first thing I knew was, oh, my goodness, they're all my customers, producers, wives, parties, Barneys, everything's going to stop. I know they'll get scared. And, you know, quickly to, I think everyone couldn't believe how quickly I changed my business model, which was within months. And I started a new label as well as my mainline label, Colette by Colette Dinnigan, because suddenly I knew they'll still want to buy something in six months, but they're not going to want to spend the money that they did. Parties would stop happening because those executives weren't around. There were no bonuses. And I think that's about reading the market and trusting your instinct. It's not about being told what to do because from a business point of view, it's so important to trust your instinct and to look and learn and listen to what's going on around you and in the world. Lots of good advice in there. <laughs> I know, I know you've, you've lived through it. Hey, um, tell me, just let's go back to your dresses for a minute because I remember, you know, I've, I've been with Kate for 30 years and some of her cherished dresses and jackets and things over the years have been yours. I mean, it's just been beautiful. It must be a real buzz to see the amount of joy and the passion that these pieces bring people and that they're still in Kate's wardrobe and or archives. It must be really cool. No, you know, it's even when we're living in Italy over the last few years or so, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people go, oh, you're Colette Dinnigan, the designer from Australia? I go, yeah, you know, here's me in my sarong or at the beach or in some kind of shift because it's summertime in Italy and I'm at the gardener's markets. And they had no idea my business had stopped, but they'd always say, my daughter got married in your dress or I got married or I wore my first dress to a really special event and they all have stories. And I think like a lot of things, those dresses tell a lot of stories and they keep a lot of secrets you know, too. But since closing my business too, you know, I've got my archive of some of my favourite pieces and I still don't quite know what to do with it because it's out in storage. And, you know, I, I think... It's, it's very satisfying and I think it's kind of retrospective because when you're in the moment, you kind of don't take that on board. You just kind of go, yeah, 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 next because you're on to the next thing. But looking back now at my career, I sort of appreciated a lot more, you know, the amount of compliments I get from what I did. And, and I also realised too, you know, my hard work wasn't in vain because so much was done by hand and, you know, one-off pieces and so many different fittings and fashion now, a lot of clothing is so disposable and it's not handmade. And I always believe that there would be a world where people would appreciate, you know, the handmade factor. And I, I think that's true now. Absolutely. Pretty amazing woman, huh? Next up, Maurice Terzini, the visionary restaurateur and entrepreneur. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? But very clever guy, very hardworking. He's behind Bondi Icebergs and many other extraordinary restaurants. Loves delivering a great time, bringing people together with his restaurants and incredible food. Over to you, Morris. 
started as, you know, just a group of, like, you know, young kids that just wanted to, like, listen to jazz and smoke a lot of dope, really. And as the years progressed, professionalism started to kick in and we sort of wanted to get better and better. And right. so we'd just push ourselves more and we'd be learning more and be learning more about business and more about the industry. Right. And it just sort of took its toll and we just grew from there, really. It wasn't something that was really calculated. A lot of people asked me that. It was really just a work in progress. Yeah, well, you know, and I think that that's why it was so successful because it was quite authentic. I think that the growth was quite authentic. You know, we didn't go in there trying to, you know, claim that we knew it all. Yeah. So all we really wanted to do was just, you know, listen to Coltrane and serve cappuccinos and cook some food and serve some people. So that's how it really started. It started with no budget. It started with no forecast. We just knew that it was a really good idea and sort of we had a really good gut feeling that it was just going to work. You know, and I think that sometimes I look back at the gigs that I opened, the most successful gigs that I've opened are the ones that have had pretty much no budget or forecasts and they've just been opened with, you know, just with a gut feeling. And, you know, I don't know if I should be saying that for the next generation, but, you know, that's, that's how it was almost back then. If the idea was powerful, you just went with it. Yeah. I think there was less to risk as well, that, you know, in those days. Like, again, you know, you know, we opened up a restaurant with $13,000, but we did build it ourselves. Yeah. Sort of started working with some young designers, people like Chris Connell that had only done one or two gigs at the time. So there was, you know, there was a whole community of us, a network of friends that I had that sort of embraced it and helped me in some way or another, whether it be through graphics or, you know, through design or through construction. Yeah. And yeah. so on. So, you know, that's how pretty much it started, yeah. It's a great story, mate. Yeah. I was chatting it's to a very, Kate. It's a very simple story. Yeah. You know? No, it's beautiful. So I was asking Kate about it um, a couple of days ago and she said that one of the magical things about Cafe Ecochina was she was a superstar at the time, but she might be on her own, want a quick lunch. She'd often just turn up and because it was so small, I think there was only... How many tables? We had, we had 20, 25 chairs downstairs. We had yeah. about 15 outside. And that was for the first three years. And then we renovated and did the upstairs that yeah. was about another 25 right. chairs. So we ended up with about 60 chairs all right, up. Right, Yeah, well, she said she'd often turn up even if she was just on her own and it was usually packed and you'd put her on another table with someone else. But it was that you were so good at that of teaming up people and creating conversations and people sitting close to each other and it create these unexpected yeah. magic yeah. moments. Yeah, Cafe Cachita was very interesting because it was owned as much by the clients as it was owned by me and I think the people really embraced it. So there was that sense of community and it actually really worked. It's what, that's what drove it. And what had happened is there was a lot of clients that, that would frequent Cafe Cachita that were really sort of like similar age to myself, that were all starting their careers, in, whether it be music, art, fashion. Yeah. And we just all grew together. And some of them went off, you know, and Kate was already there, but went off and did, you know, bigger and better things. And then there was a lot of magazine people that now are editors and a lot of artists or fashion designers that have now gone off to be very, very successful. And it was that whole melting pot of post-punk Melbourne, really. And I think the Cafe Cucina really came to the pinnacle of it all, you know. Yeah. No, it's very cool. I mean, particularly we're in this COVID era right now with the social distancing and the separation and exactly what it says, social distancing. It's like the, the opposite to what you want to create as a restaurant experience, isn't it? I know. We're, we're shoulder to shoulder, you know, definitely shoulder to shoulder. I'm not quite sure if you're familiar with Harry's Bar in Venice, but, you know, Arrigo Cipriani is a great inspiration for us and for myself in particular. And, 
pretty much we've read everything he's written, but um, in one of his books, in one of his chapters, he, he talks about restaurants are for flirting and people need to be able to sort of, you know, almost touch each other or overhear each other's conversations. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing. So we always talk about the social role that restaurants have. And I think that that's a message that we've been really shouting out to the public and to the world since this whole COVID thing had happened. You know, people can eat at home, but the social role that restaurants have is incredibly important. Absolutely. It's one of the things that, you know, occurred to me as I was reading up on you and the various restaurants going, my God, I've actually never really duplicated the cultural role that restaurants play. And um, yeah, I usually think of, you know, music and these other things and kind of in a way take restaurants for granted because that's something we have to do to survive to eat. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of looking at it and going, wow, that's just the, the amount of magic moments and, you know, big life moment experiences that you've delivered in your restaurants for tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people through your career. I'm like, wow, it's a significant cultural impact. Yeah, no, very important. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really fascinating to me. Yeah, Something yeah. else that's interesting, and I noticed from, you know, back at those days in Hecachina, like I knew you were there. It was like you were, you were invisible at the same time. You were running the thing and you were sort of matchmaking and you were putting it all together with your creative vision. But at the same time, you weren't the star of the show. You were kind of invisible, which is yeah, kind no, of interesting. Yeah. Is that by plan or? Oh, I think that just, you know, just something that we were taught. My father ran a number of cafes and restaurants, as I said, during the 70s as well. And some of them were quite successful. And, um, you know, they would always say that a waiter's role is to be invisible, really. Wow. You know, you know? and, you know, we're there, but we're not there. We're there to service, but not, you know, not to be the star of the show, very much what you're saying now. And it just becomes about the restaurant. The restaurant is bigger than all of us. Yeah, right. You know? Well, I mean, as the maitre d' traditionally, that that is often a flamboyant character and they can be a kind of a bit of a star. But I noticed, obviously, the, the legend has grown, but you still maintain that. Yeah, no, we, day, had, we, we, we had a very different approach, I suppose, also coming from that cultural background, you know, the 70s and then, you know, living that sort of post-punk period in Melbourne. I think they were a lot more humble, you know, and we didn't need to necessarily be the big stars of the shows. And, you know, we were literally there doing the hard yards, you know, so there yeah. wasn't the time to sort of shine. Yeah. Tell me, so in how many people, how many meals a day were you doing through Cafe Cucina at the time? Cucina at one stage was peaking at about 1,300 people a day. So, you know, when it was really at its absolute peak, well, we're voted top 10 cafes of the world by New York Times. And um, there was a period there. Um, so we, the first two years we were unlicensed. So we basically went in and we're just listening to jazz and just serving a mixture of things that we understood you know, and then we changed chef. My first partner, Maria, left in 1990 and I, our new chef came in, Andrea, was from up near Vincenza and he'd been working at the famous Rosati for, you know, Piero and Ronnie and so on and so on and a few other restaurants. He was very, very skillful, came from a very, very, very smart, you know, restaurateurian family um, and his background actually was in patisserie and he'd work in Mission Stars and so on. And so he came on board. And at that time there, we became licensed. I think we were one of the first small restaurants to become licensed. And everything changed then, you know, with the introduction of the license, with the introduction of Andrea, that's when Kachina really became from just being, 
you know, the neighborhood cafe to really be in the institution that it is today, you know. And it was about that period from about 1990 to about 94 or 95, I think just before I left it, you know, left the group. Um, Although I did keep some shares in the business for quite some time. Yeah. During that period, there was a group of six, seven, eight, nine waiters. Yeah. That pretty much worked together every day for seven, you know, seven days a week for all that time. You know, some of my waiters were going home with three, four thousand dollars a week, you know, between tips and, and salary. They were the great days of tips and salary, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, we just, we were just, you know, we were just on fire. We'd open up at 7 a.m. in the morning till 12 at night. We never had an empty seat. And it was all day dining as well. So kitchen never closed. Wow. So again, it's sort of like, you know, there was very few places at that time. I think it was Pellegrini's, Tiamo's, maybe, um, you know, a few yep. other bits and pieces here and there. Obviously the Mario's, you know, that really introduced that all day dining. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, that's, that's what we created. And, you know, it just sort of just flowed. Yeah, know? beautiful. Okay, next up, Remo Giffray. Bit of an iconic Sydney identity. He had uh, his store, Remo, based on Oxford Street in Sydney for many years. And, um, you know, he's an entrepreneur, a retail merchant, brand builder, creative strategist. He's a pretty creative guy, and he seems to be able to apply his mind to any endeavour and find the smartest way forward. Here you go, Remo. Kind of blew my mind. You went to uni, you did law or commerce, you got an MBA, you did the whole kind of academic high achieving ducks of school path, yeah. and then you've come out and you've gone and opened a store Become a on shopkeeper, Oxford Street. Much, much <laughs> to the confusion of my mother at the time. That, but, that's uh, right. So, yeah, what happened and, and how does that happen? It happens, you know, I have an interest in design probably genetic interest in design. My father was um, an industrialist, but he designed most of the things that he ended up manufacturing in factories, whether that was cosmetic packaging or aluminium furniture or or what have you. And, um, you know, the most interesting thing you can design is your own life. That's the most fun thing to design. And I just didn't like the way things were turning out on that sort of corporate traditional track. So really the decision to, armed with these three Ivy League degree uh, and um, all of this um, momentum and prospects in that space here back in Australia, having lived in New York while I was doing my MBA, I just um, came to the conclusion that I just couldn't live that life, that it wasn't going to be something that would give me joy. And that's why I took over this lease of a five and dime Greek family run, you know, shop on that very prominent corner of Crown and Oxford Street in that beautiful Victorian building. And there was no like grand plan. It was more of a desperation. (laughs) The stumbling entrepreneur. An act of desperation. It was, okay, so I might not live a large life, but at least I can live a small life that gives me joy. And to do that, what is that going to be? And so I tried to think back over the recent history, the things that had excited me. There was like Keith Haring's artwork in New York City, Keel's Pharmacy on the Lower East Side and that whole eccentricity of their family and product development vision, this brand of leather from Florence called Il Bizanti and a couple of shops in the East Village that were very interestingly curated and there was a whole range of things. So I thought, gee, I wonder if I actually just aggregated all of that into a space here in Sydney, whether there'd be enough people for whom that would also be interesting. 
who would maybe, you know, buy some stuff from time to time enough to sustain my small but passionate life. So that was the, that was the theory um, and took over the corner. At the time, Darlinghurst was a really interesting community of artists and designers who were living in squats and um, doing interesting work. And uh, the store ultimately ended up functioning as a platform for those people as well. It was like an offline Etsy. <laughs> so we had a contemporary design department which ended up selling the jewellery and the crowns and the furniture and the one-off stuff that the artists who were squatting in the Sergeant Pies building around the corner would be producing. You know, So it benefited from all of that contemporary energy that at the time was manifest in Darlinghurst. It's a wonderful story and just career change stories of any kind, mm. even though you hadn't gone out and kind of forged the career in law or commerce, but you'd, you know, done the degrees, yeah. you'd done the hard yards. I actually and worked for a lawyer for Baker and McKenzie Global Law Firm for about a split second and uh, they liked me actually, even though my timesheets were a joke, you know, I'd more often put a smiley face on it than I would uh, a breakdown <laughs> of how I'd done seven billable hours in a day. Um, but what happened there is that early on I realised that this, the firm was growing quite quickly here in Australia and was opening an office in Melbourne and there was one in Sydney that was growing and there was like an internal communications culture transfer issue. So I proposed to the managing partners that I found and edit a weekly internal newsletter called Memorandum. <laughs> and they kind of said, yeah, kid, go away, knock yourself out. But it, it became phenomenally popular within the firm to the point where I do remember the Thursday afternoon drop where this double-sided full-scap newsletter would be deposited on everyone's desk. And the joy of walking through the four floors of the firm in those days at the AMP Centre in Sydney and seeing that all work had stopped and everyone was reading their memorandum newsletter. So I'm a show-off and I enjoy <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. So tell me about your parents, your dad, an Italian migrant who came here with kind of nothing and opened a flower store and kind of, you know, worked his ass off. And, yeah, and that kind of huge classic success. story of the, you know, opportunity-seeking Sicilian 14-year-old, you know, going to the other side of the world to, to make a start and because there was no opportunity there and... I think he had good instincts and good work ethic and, you know, luck always helps too. And he, he became a very established guy in Sydney in the, you know, in the 30s. You know, so by the time he was 21, he was like hanging out at Romano's nightclub and doing the artwork for his mate Romano. And, you know, like yeah, he, right. he was a, you know, a non-criminal version of the made man in Sydney. But, you know, he wasn't driven as I'm not driven by money. So he was actually very uh, generous and had an interesting philanthropic uh, career as well in parallel. Founded what has become Coasit, which is the uh, Italian welfare government-funded agency that looks after and places Italian migrants when they come to this country. So, Wow, cool. So that was um, a big passion of his. Yeah, right, right. Tell me about school. What kind of kid were you at school? Were you creative? I know you were ducks of the school, but were you a geek? Were you creative? Were you sporty? What was... I was a participator in, in, you know, sport. I had a fairly low attention span, so I enjoyed the company of all of the subcultures on the playground. So I would spend time with the geeks. I'd spend time with the wogs. I'd spend time with the surfies. I'd spend time with the jocks. 
Uh, so I actually ended up being the only person that everybody knew, right? So I think probably the accidental school captain because I was the, the only name that everyone was aware of. But uh, I went to school in this neighbourhood actually up on the hill at the Christian Brothers Catholic School, Waverley College. You know, it wasn't a fancy private school. I, I think all of the sort of the religious side of it just washed over me. It didn't resonate with me at all. I kind of was able to ignore that. I had a happy experience. I, I did well academically all through my school year. It's kind of when I went to university, I sort of discovered my heavy-duty social life and probably dropped off academically there for a few years. But um, I got it back again at business school. So That's cool. It's like reading your book and looking at the career you've carved out, it's kind of like your greatest skill is your ability to communicate to whatever kind of person, whether it's design world, the academic world, the events world, that seems to be a common thread. Is that something that you just kind of had the gift of the gab as a kid or is that something you um, just, you know, developed along the way? Um, Good question. Um, Do I know the answer to that? I think I had the curiosity to hear people's story Maybe, if anything, I've lost a bit of that curiosity as I've got older, but I do recall being in my late teens, spending a lot of time in bars, talking to a lot of people about their lives and their stories and having sort of an insatiable hunger to do that every night of the week, basically. Yeah. That was a lot of alcohol and a lot of conversations. (laughs) Do you think, like, if there was one skill you could have that you could have a fantastic uh, level of skill at, would it be communication? Is it? Do you think that's the key to your success or anybody's success? I don't know if it's a skill, but I think optimism is the thing that will fuel your perseverance because you'll need the perseverance. So being able to see the silver linings, that is an important skill, I think. And I'm not clear to one of your earlier questions, whether or not that is innate or can be a partially learned trait, I'm not sure. The sort of sense that it'll be all right in the end and if it's not all right, it's not the end. Yeah. Thanks, Remo. Next up and last in this episode, Simon P. Locke, another visionary entrepreneur and he kind of put Australian fashion on the map when he founded Mercedes Australian Fashion Week which was incredibly successful and then um, had spin-offs all around the world. Fashion's a pretty fickle industry, but Simon's navigated a path and he's got some incredible other things he's working on now. And um, over to you, Simon. So I got it that you didn't do well at school. It's interesting how many people I've had on the podcast. I've been amazed how many left school early or didn't do well at school. And I find it really inspiring for people out there because, you know, a lot of kids struggle at school and think, oh, my God, so much pressure. I'm never going to make anything of myself because I'm not doing well at school. Well, I love telling people, hey, you know, the world, your future is a blank canvas, you know? Yeah, I think there's definitely other pathways. I mean, yeah. I was not a good student. I mean, I did have the opportunity to go to a good school in Melbourne, Campbell Grammar School, and and then, you know, I, I attempted to go to university but really failed there. But it always, I guess, had a, an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, you know, my mother tells stories about me selling dirt and jam bottles to the people next door for, you know, whatever, to raise pocket money. I had a, you know, I had a milk run and I had a, you know, a paper run and all that sort of stuff when I was a kid. But then um, 
when I um, came out of you know high school era, and I went into a, a, my, my dad was um, then a director at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and got me a holiday job in there. And with not having a lot of direction, you know, I went into I, you know I had this grandiose idea that I was going to become a doctor, and I was just so far away from HSC marks to get anywhere near that. And so when I couldn't become a doctor, I decided I'd wanted to become an oceanographer because I get to surf a lot, but you had to do an applied degree in geology. So I started that with rocks. I mean, God only knows why. And then that didn't work, obviously. Went back to my holiday job. I thought, okay, well, perhaps I could be a health administrator like Dad. And I threw myself at that. And um, it was very bizarre. So turns out that while, you know, I didn't have a lot of administrative education, that when I threw myself and with my, my work ethic, I started to accelerate through the admin department and started off as a a clerk in the supply room. Then I was an assistant purchasing officer. And all of a sudden, I found myself at the age of 20 as the assistant supply manager of the Royal Melbourne Hospital with a staff of like 35 people and a budget of $90 million. And it's just like, how did that happen? It was bizarre. And then I sort of you know, sitting there looking at myself. I looked like I was 35. I was wearing a three-piece suit. I had this tragic moustache and I was going bald. And I was just like, what am I doing? (laughs) What am I doing? Um, And I guess my entrepreneurial self had kicked in and, you know, the biggest passion in my life apart from uh, my family is is skiing and subsequently surfing. And so I hatched a plan with my buddy is that, if we could do anything, we could make a living out of skiing. Let's start our own ski shop. And so at the ripe old age of 2021, 20, we did a whole stake of research, came up with a, a business plan to open Pro Ski, the, the best skiers ski shop in, uh, in the world based in Glenferry Road in Hawthorne. And at the tender age of 22, we uh, convinced, stroke conned, two businessmen into loaning us uh, enough equity finance. They had 50%. They actually had 51% because there was no way they were going to let us run it. Um, we had 49%. And we, we launched ProSki. Um, business ran for 17 years, was, uh, was a huge success, a lot of innovation in, in the ski industry. But as a small business, it taught me um, how to deal with people. It taught me um, how to market, how to buy, how to manage, how to run a bank account. It was such a great incubator to learn business. And you know, I and I, I okay, this is it. This, you know, this is this is the shit I like doing. And then a very you know interesting journey from there. I started to write for uh, newspapers about my ski exploits. Um, a PR company saw them and said, oh, you're right, well, you should become a PR consultant. And they offered me, you know, I can remember it was 35000 Australian dollars at the time. And I was just like, that would be like, you know, some kid out of school being offered like, you know, 150 grand now. And I was just like, so are you going to pay me how much? And I'm like, okay, we're putting someone in the shop. I'm going to go and do this PR thing. So I, I, I excelled quite quickly at this PR thing. And then unusual set of circumstances, I was at Saatchi's uh, working in PR and the managing director of Saatchi and Saatchi PR in Australia had had a falling out with Morris and Charles Saatchi. And they had decided that it, it all wasn't going the way that they liked and that they were going to close 
that business down and I was just going to buy a big PR company and put their name on the door. And this is what was going to happen. I, I didn't like the sound of that. So somehow I, I got them both on the phone <laughs> in London and, and they're like, sorry, who is this? I'm like, hi, hi, my name's Simon Locke. Look, you, I know you're going to close this thing down. I tell you what, you know, look, you're paying me $35,000, which is great, but why don't you let me be managing director? And give me six months and I'll turn this puppy around. And they're like, sorry, who are you again? I'm like, just, you know, just give me six months. And, you know, um, I've, I had a chat to all the other staff and they're going to back me. And they're like, sorry, what's your name? And like, okay. So... They sent their chief operating officer, a guy by the name of Tim Bell, who was very, you know, you might have heard him in advertising, he came to Australia and I had I had to do the pitch to him and he's like, yeah, okay, okay, we'll give you a go. So I got appointed as managing director of Saatchi and Saatchi's PR. I'd been in public relations for nine months. Holy shit. <laughs> and, um, and we turned that puppy around. And that's when I, I guess I learnt the importance of teamwork, you know, because... If it was left to me, I, I didn't know anything. But with the team around me and the great people who had the experience together, all I was was the catalyst, you know. And, um, yeah, that, that turned out to be a very successful business and it was through that business that, you know, led me to eventually start my, my own agencies in Australia. Wow, that's amazing. What about the fashion? Where does that come from, do you think? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I guess there's two sides of it is that, I think that the fashion interest, in my early years having seen fashion in Europe and how people dress in the Med or, you know, on Miami with long socks or just a different sort of vibe intrigued me. And so I'd always, you know, personal style had always become sort of important to me even when I was a kid. And then I had uh, a wonderful grandmother who lived with me for, for most of my growing years right up until teenager. She was very stylish, but she had this peculiar thing. Every season, she would get rid of a summer wardrobe, replace it with her winter wardrobe, and then all the summer wardrobe would go off to St. Vincent's, and then she'd go out and buy And it's just like, well, what are you doing, Nan? And she's like, oh, well, you know, it's the change of the seasons. This is how fashion works. You know, each season, you replace it with the new season, and you get new stuff. I'm just like... This is insane, you know. And I can remember actually sitting in her bedroom watching as she'd change the seasons over in a wardrobe um, and go and get new outfits and put it together. It just always intrigued me. And then, and then later in life when, when we'd got spin together and uh, we'd started to do some work with some of the Australian designers, people like Joe Sabo um, and Colette and people like that, and it was just like everyone's trying to get more noticed in Australia and, you know, someone said, gee, wouldn't it be good if we had a fashion week here? You know, it's so hard for us to go over to Paris or to Milan if we could bring everyone here. And this thought just captivated me. And I can remember Nan and her seasonal changes and I started to understand marketing and the fashion industry and we're starting to do events then. It's just like, yeah, this is really interesting. So um, I took myself off overseas and hacked my way into London, Paris, Milan and New York and looked at how they were doing things and, all, and how the whole structure of the International Fashion Week circuit worked. And this was about 92, I guess, and came back and said, yep, I reckon we can do this, but we're going to do it differently and we're going to give ourselves advantages that those four old-fashioned Fashion Weeks 
uh, were doing. So we did things differently. We created a centralized schedule. We did global marketing. We did we did things that that gave us a competitive advantage over the others. And uh, so yeah, that's sort of and it, you know, it took us four years of work and development, and um, and then the first event happened in uh, in '96. It's an incredible story because really, you know, Australian fashion wasn't taken seriously on the global stage at that time at all. laughed at. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I got laughed at many times. Yeah, I bet. So it was a visionary move and thing you created. Give us an insight into a conversation you might have had with, I don't know, a major sponsor or someone that came on board when you're saying, hey, I'm going to take Australian designers to the world and we're going to compete with, you know, New York, Milan, Paris, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I know you're, a, you know, you've got the gift of the gab, but that's that's quite an achievement. Yeah, well, I guess it, it, I just I think there was a sense of that no one believed it was possible. There was, you know, this holy grail of London, Paris, Milan and New York and we'd only ever see it through the pages of Vogue and that was just so unachievable. And then you'd go to, you know, the big retailers in Paris, you know, Galerie Lafayette or Printemps and I'd get in to see them and say, you know, you should come and see, you know, you should see Colette Dinigan, you should see Morrissey Edmondson, oh, my God, they're amazing, you know, and they'd be like, who? I mean, by that time, Colette was a little known in Paris, so she was a big fish out of big water at that stage. But no one else had really been heard of. Um, but, you know, I knew we just had amazing talent. But the talent needed to believe in itself because the, the, what, what worked was, again, I think what Australian Fashion Week was most successful at in the early years was being a catalyst, was bringing our whole industry together at one time and we all came together, we realised how powerful we were because one person couldn't do it alone. And, it, you know, there was a couple of, you know, key people that were important in in convincing the industry that we had the confidence. So, you know, people like Nancy Pilcher and Jane DeTalliger who were leading in the media, they, they believed in me so other people started to believe in me. You know, I got quite close to the Keatings there for a little while and we had Anita Keating who believed in me and she opened up Kirribilli House and said, okay, Simon, let's see what we can do here. I bet you those designers won't turn down an invitation to Kirribilli, will they? Let's, let's invite them over for afternoon tea and you can have a chat to them. So, <laughs> so that was good. And then, you know, we had people like Peter Collins who was then treasurer of New South Wales, you know, going... Okay, look, I get it. I'm arts minister as well as treasurer. I get it. You know, we need to promote ourselves. We're more than, you know, a, a sporting nation. So so he got it. Um, and then, you know, we were eventually able to convince um, Mercedes-Benz. I mean, you know, unheard of. First Fashion Week ever to have any corporate sponsorship was us, let alone a naming rights partner because, you know, the event was Mercedes Australian Fashion Week. And um, it was an incredible, uh, incredible situation that uh, that happened, which is um, I won't bore you too long with the story, but we'd been negotiating with BMW and we had BMW basically at the table ready to sign. This was the first event was in May 96. This was in October, November the year before. So we're only six months out from the event. We're at the table to sign. Lawyers are at the table and BMW go, look, 
just one small point we'd like to make here. Happy to sign up with this program, but we're not going to pay you for the first year. We'll only pay you for year two, three, four, or five. And I'm like, what do you mean? They go, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the way we're going to do it. But it's like you pulled the how what you know I made commitments. I've got, d, 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 it's just like, are you joking me? I, I was proud of myself because I really did want to jump over the table and rip their throats out. But I just held my cool. I said, okay, well, I just need to think about this. Left the room. I'm like, right, these guys are they're now my enemy. Who's their enemy? Mercedes Benz. So that afternoon. I just rung and rung and rung and rung until I got through to Bernd Schleckham, who was the chairman of Asia Pacific and Mercedes-Benz, and my first words with him was, hi, I'm Simon Locke and we have a mutual enemy in BMW and I want to crush them. <laughs> and he's like, sorry. <laughs> and I said, we are going to create huge news around Australia and the world about fashion. You have cars that are for old people, right? I know that Mercedes are bringing out the A class, the B class and the C class, okay? But you need to connect with younger people. You need to be cool. You need to be fashionable and fashion's your ticket to ride here. And he's just like, but we sponsored the symphony and we sponsor <laughs> the arts and we sponsor the opera. And I go, yeah, it's not going to work. And he's like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm coming to see you. And so... <laughs> Came to see Bert, and Bert was he was he was almost about to retire, and he went, you know what, you're right, okay, let's do this, and so we signed what turned out to be the the longest fashion sponsorship in the world. Mercedes Benz not only sponsored Australian Fashion Week through Bert, we took the concept to Stuttgart, and they ended up sponsoring 17 fashion weeks around the world. And it was all on the back of, yeah, fashion was the right industry to connect with because they had new stuff coming out. And, um, yeah, it was a, an amazing partnership and, um, yeah, just happened like that. That is phenomenal. Crazy. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Sorry, BMW, you had your chance but you blew it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. That's the end of this best of episode 52 of The Blank Canvas. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.